series that we're in is called Spirit and Truth. I'm excited about it. Today's the third. I will not take time to review as I normally do. I love series because it helps us to build and connect. But today I need every second that I have available. And so uh, buckle your seatbelt, hang with me because we're going to tackle some stuff this morning that might be a little bit controversial. The title of the message today is called Bringing Clarity to Confusion. Say that with me. Bringing Clarity to Confusion. Our series text that we're using throughout this whole uh, six-week series is John 4.24. The New Living Translation says, For God is Spirit, capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit of God. So those who worship Him must worship in, say it with me, Spirit and in truth. Um, our message text for this morning, quickly moving to that, is 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is writing. It's called a pastoral epistle. The epistles weren't the wives of the apostles, as one little country preacher said. Epistles are letters. The epistles are written to specific churches in the New Testament era. Most of them in the Bible written by a guy by the name of Paul, and so we call them Pauline epistles. Doesn't mean that he was female, but just an adjective, Pauline epistles written by Paul. And so he writes to Timothy, who is a young son in the Lord to him. Paul is a mentor to Timothy that he's trained up from a young age, who was heavily influenced by two women in his life, uh, Eunice and his grandmother Lois, strong women of God that built into him. Scripture says from your infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. And so Paul writes to Timothy in the second letter, the second pastoral epistle, he says, remind everyone about these things. Now let me just stop and give you what the context is. He says he's talking about endurance. He's talking about um, standing up in the face of suffering. Uh, he talks about athletes that run races and don't break rules, farmers that plant seed and therefore are granted the opportunity to glean the first fruits of the crop. Uh, soldiers that don't involve themselves in civilian matters. And he's dealing with suffering, with endurance. And this chapter begins with a very famous verse, 222, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says, those things that you've heard from me and learned from me, I want you to take time, Timothy, to invest in and teach them to faithful people who will be qualified to teach others, who will be able to teach others also. And so he's given us four generations of multiplication. Paul mentors Timothy. Timothy builds it and invests those same truths into faithful people who will be able to teach others beyond them. So Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. So this, this thing is about the multiplication of Christianity. This is the classic discipleship scripture where we take what God has done in our lives and we invest it in others beyond us. That's the reason that Christianity is still alive 2,000 years later, because we have been, somebody's been involved in making disciples, not just Christians, not Baptists, nothing wrong with that denomination, but he didn't say any of that. He didn't, he didn't even say make believers, he said make disciples, okay? Go and make disciples of all nations. So he says, remind everyone about these things. Those are the, those are the things that he's talking about in the context. He says, and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Say that with me. Stop fighting over words. Such arguments are useless. You know how those things are. You've seen them on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, not so much on Instagram. That's the reason I really gravitate toward that social media because it's not a thing of a lot of argument usually. 
the way some of the other social media, and I'm on all of those, but um, matter of fact, a few years ago, I was involved in a few of those arguments on Facebook and just had to pull off. I said, I just can't do this. I don't, I don't want to be a part of that contentious spirit. Um, he says, he says, work hard. He says, they can ruin those who hear them. And I think about the world sometimes that sees the, the church fussing over words or over meanings or over interpretations. And they don't get involved. They, they distance themselves from us. They don't want to be a part of a contentious group. So they stay away from the church because they think they were a bunch of nuts. Okay, He says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Now, let me give you this in the King James. Then some of you, you don't feel like you've been to church until you hear King Jimmy quoted. So I'm going to give it to you. Here we go. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that need, needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So study. Uh, the New Translation of New Living says, work hard at it. Be careful to seek the approval of God, not of men. He says... I want you to uh, be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed, but one who correctly explains the word of truth. Now, that's our text for the message this morning, because we're going to dig into a couple of things that might have a little bit of controversy on them. And in the spirit of doing that, I want to give you what is going to be the chorus that we'll sing throughout this song, through this flow, this ebb and flow in this teaching this morning. This came out of the Reformation. It was 502 years ago. It was October 31st, 1517, when a born-again German monk who had gotten a revelation from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the New Testament books of, of Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, four voices, four locations in the Scripture that it says, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther had been part of a religious system that was all about works and he began to get a revelation of grace. And out of that reformation, we have typically the four solas that are known. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola scriptura, the word of God alone. Solus Christus, which is Christ alone. Soli deo gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. Another phrase that came through that period of revolutionary truth is this one. It says... In the essentials, unity. Everybody say that with me. In the essentials, unity. Read on. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Everybody, one more time. In the essentials, in the non-essentials, in all things, charity. Very good. So whatever we do, it needs to be done with charity, which is an old English word for love, agape. Let it be done with a spirit of God's unconditional love. In the essentials, let's be one voice. The essentials are considered to be things that are critical to your salvation. Not believing or believing in them is a salvific matter. We at Victory lean into what is called the Apostles' Creed. If you've come from a Methodist, an Episcopalian, a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, some others, um, then you've probably grown up hearing the Apostles' Creed recited I believe in God, the Father of all, uh, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, crucified, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, so on and so forth, raised the third day. So we can go on and on. I'm not going to take time, but there are 12 statements of faith that we adhere to and we believe in at victory 
that are essentials of the faith. We won't take time to argue with you over the virgin birth. I love you. I love you with the love of the Lord. You can hang around victory and not believe it, but I just want you to know we believe that. I believe it's essential in terms of uh, having a Savior that is sinless. And uh, there, there are a number of things that are important, that are critical there, but there are thousands of things that aren't there. You don't see a particular view of end times or eschatology. You won't see whether there are any gifts of the Holy Spirit in terms of speaking in tongues or divine healing or any of that. None of that's mentioned. Um, it, it, it talks about um, the forgiveness of sins, the communion of saints, um, the, then Christ's second coming, obviously, the life everlasting. And so there are a whole lot of things that are left open because all of these other non-essentials where we say there needs to be liberty, those are not necessarily white or black areas that are easily nailed down. Sometimes there are various viewpoints. Sometimes it's not just a binary choice between one or the other. Sometimes it's choices between a number of different things. Uh, there's nothing mentioned about whether you should be a vegetarian or eat meat. There's nothing about alcohol, whether you should consume it or not, whether you should be a teetotaler or whether you should be a sometimer and have, have a drink once in a while. And You know, it leaves those things up to your conscience and to your understanding of the Word. And the fact of the matter is, is that you can take various scriptures to prove those questions, but then you're going to have to wrestle with other passages that seem to disprove your position. Are you hearing me? So the Word is all about teaching us to follow what the Word says in wisdom with the Spirit, but then doing all of that in love. We should be a body of people that I don't have to write 10,000 position papers on every little jot and tittle and tell you that unless you agree with me that you're not going to heaven. There are churches that if that's what you're into, this is not one of them. I love you with the love of the Lord. But we are a part of a larger body of Christ, which we love and honor and respect. The scripture says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The issue is that too many times the stream I'm in starts to think that it's the river and everybody else is a mud puddle. The issue is, is that there are multiple streams that all flow into God's river. And you can take a drink from them, but know that you're still part of this river. And every one of them have had critical contributions to the body of Christ throughout church history, whether it's the Methodist stream or the Baptist stream or the Pentecostal stream or the Presbyterian stream or any of these various, or the word of faith stream. And, and you know what? There are, there are extremes in all the streams, okay? But none of the streams is the river, but they all flow into that river, this great massive understanding of God's word and his truth. Therefore, we can have respect for brothers or sisters. It's like, um, it's like the fact that the scripture says there is one vine but many branches. And I have to love the, br the brother on the other side of the vine who sees life from a different perspective than I do because he's got a different viewpoint than I do. Are you following me this morning? All right, there are many tribes, but there's one holy nation in the old covenant. There are many members, but there's one body. I have multiple members in this body, but it's all together in one, flowing and functioning together, okay? So in the middle of all of this, we recognize there is a small circle of essentials that we have to agree on here at Victory. There's a multitude, there is a plethora of options about other things that you don't have to necessarily agree, but we're going to be charitable to each other even in our disagreement. Somebody say amen. 
okay? So one more time, let's get it for the hearing impaired. Here we go. In essentials, in non-essentials, in all things, charity. Okay, so let's, let's jump in this morning with this bringing clarity uh, to confusion. As we open the Bible, we always want to get the big picture. We want to move from the big picture, from the macro, down to the micro, okay? We can't go micro and then demand that the macro conform to an obscure idea. We look at it from the whole, okay? So the big picture is that we have one Bible and we have two covenants. I want them to put a chart up for me this morning, and you can look at that. Uh, we have an old covenant and we have a new covenant. If that's confusing to you, it's the identical, it's a synonym for the word testament. There is an Old Testament and there is a New Testament. We've got everything is natural in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 says, first the natural, then afterward that which is spiritual. In the Old Testament, it was God specifically dealing with the Israelite people. It's the redemptive story of God coming down through a family line and through a national heritage. There is a national, there is a natural temple. It's built out of stones. There are nat natural sacrifices that are offered in that temple. There is the blood of bulls and goats and doves and rams that is shed on a regular basis to roll back the sins of the nation of Israel. But when we move to the new covenant, let me just say this, let me, let me go back to the old for just a second. There is a natural priesthood. You had to be a member of the tribe of Levi. You, how you were born determined whether you could be a priest or not. You had to be of the lineage of Aaron, just the brother of Moses, okay? So there's a natural priesthood offering natural sacrifices in a natural temple. But when you come to the New Testament, Jesus continues those concepts but radically changes everything. There is a continuity from old to new, but there is a discontinuity in that it all becomes a spiritual understanding. Now we don't have a natural temple anymore because we, the people of God, are the temple of God. Come on. There, there are no longer blood sacrifices that are being offered for your sins because Jesus offered the once for all, for all time, for all people, his blood sacrifice, which rolled away, took away, obliterated, destroyed, annihilated, nullified the claim of the sins of the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And when Jesus came, once and for all, now the sacrifices that are in the temple of God are the spiritual sacrifices of thanksgiving, praise, joy, worship. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me? Okay, so all of those natural principles that we learn in the old now become spiritually fulfilled in a people, okay? And so we see 39 books in the Old Testament divided into Jesus' own description in Luke chapter 24. He spoke of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And it's a group of 17, 5, and 17, 39 total. You've got 17 historical books and 17 prophetic books. In the middle of it, you've got five books of poetry. We, Jesus called them all psalms, but that's a broad context of poetry books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon are those five books of poetry in the middle of law and prophecy. Now, those are divided into 5 and 12, and these are divided into 5 and 12 in the 17. 
the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you've got 12 books of history from the time they left Egypt, went in and possessed the land, raised up a king, they have a kingdom, they disobey God, the kingdom splits. You've got all of that history all the way through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. They're carried away into Babylon. And then you've got the restoration after they exile with Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And then you see the five books of, of, the, of the poetry. You move over to the 17 prophets and you've got five major ones and 12 minor ones. There's five and 12 on this side. There's five and 12 on this side. And there's five in the middle. So the five, five prophets are the big books, the major ones. Five major prophets doesn't mean they're major because they got a centerfold spread in Charisma magazine. It means they're major because the volume of their book, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, another writing of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you got 12 little bitty ones that are, some of them only one chapter, some of them eight or 10 or 12 chapters. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So that's the 39 books, all a natural people, they, 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 they're coming out of captivity, they become a nation, they disobey God, they're, they take it, they're gone into captivity again, then they come back out of captivity and God restores them back to Jerusalem. If you're reading the Bible and you're hoping to read a chronological story, it's not that way, okay? I want you to recognize that. There's a way you can do that. If you want to read the Bible chronologically so you can get it in a linear way, that's available on version with your Bible app, or you can actually go to a Bible bookstore and you can buy a chronological Bible and they're all going to be positioned in a chronological sense. They are booked together like a library. You've got law and history and you've got prophecy all together. And the fact of the matter is that history includes all the way from Adam all the way up to the, to the New Testament. And it's concluded right there in about Second Chronicles. And then you've got prophets that are prophesying before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile, but all the prophecies together. So it makes sense. It's grouped together in terms of categories, okay? You jump over to the New Testament, and you've got the same thing happening. You've got five history books. Four of them are Gospels. That's the story about Jesus, the Messiah. And then you've got the book of Acts, where believers lean into this, this teaching about Jesus, and they go out and do mighty works, mighty acts of the Holy Spirit. And then you've got a bunch of letters, Pauline letters. If you're a real student of the word, you can fuss with me about the 14 because nobody knows about Hebrews. I lean into Paul having written it, and frankly, I don't care. It's some amazing truth. Some say Apollos, some say another, another author. I, I just group it with Paul. And then there's seven more that are general epistles, which you will find James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, three letters from John, and then the book of Jude, and then you have one book at the end, Revelation. Now, we got two covenants, we got 66 books, and all of that is the grand big picture of what God's redemptive story is about. Every, every one of them are going to come from a different angle. And the reason that I bring this to you is because it's important that when we look at the Word of God, that we maintain our understanding of context. Because context is critical, point number two. Context is critical. Context is everything. Because if I don't have context, a, a text without a context is a pretext, which means I can 
pull any verse out of the Bible that I want to, and I can make it say anything that I want to make it say if it's not in the right context. Are y'all following me this morning? Every verse has a chapter that it comes from, and the chapter has a subject. Every chapter is in a book. A book has a reason to be written. Every book is in a covenant. That covenant is in the whole Bible. And when you look at context, you need to recognize that it's important that we have a view of the big picture and a view of the whole, and we start with the macro, and then we move down to the micro, okay? Now, bullet points are going to come up real quick. Point number two, and this context is critical. Um, we use the science of Bible interpretation, which is called hermeneutics. That's a $100 Bible school seminary concept. Hermes was the Greek god. He was the messenger of the gods. And so we have used, when I say we, I wasn't there when they made the decision. Uh, obviously, this has been hundreds of years ago. But they used the idea of Hermes being the messenger and to, to give us this science of interpreting Scripture. And it's, it's, these are interpretive principles that you use to interpret anything. Um, justices of the Supreme Court use a hermeneutic to interpret what the Constitution means. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Anytime you open the Bible, or any book for that matter, whatever you're reading, if you're going to dig a little deeper, if you're not just reading on a surface level, but you're perusing it, you're really digging deep into it, then um, you want to ask the reporter questions. You want to ask who? Who is writing? And to whom is the writer speaking? Who, to whom is he writing? Um, what is being said? What are the words? What do those words mean? What is the context of those words? Um, who, what, when? When was it written? Um, what's the history behind it? What are the major world events? What has happened that might have caused the writer to speak to a specific subject that a hundred years prior to that he wouldn't have had anything to say about it because it hadn't happened? Like when Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem in 586, Six BC and destroyed. I'm, yeah, that's right. And took carried them into captivity. So writers are obviously speaking to cultural events, political events. The kingdom is toppled. We've been invaded by another nation. So that's the reason you need to know the context. You need to know who and whom. Who's writing? Who's who? Who is the whom that he's writing to? What is being said? Where is it happening? The geography is going to make a difference. Is it in? Israel proper, or is it in, in um, Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, okay? Um, is it in Egypt? Uh, all of those things make a difference. When? When is it being spoken? Is this New Testament after Jesus has come? Because it's going to change my view on everything, because he's, he's, there is a continuity of principle, but there's a discontinuity there's a discontinuity in terms of how we're carrying this out because Jesus life and sacrifice changed everything. Everybody say changed everything. Okay? So context is critical. The reporter questions are who, what, when, where, and then once you ascertain those, then you can start to dig into the fun part which is the why. Why is the question that's the ultimate. Come on. All of you have been riding around with your kids in the car at some point on a family trip, and your kids ask you why, and you say, well, because so-and-so, and then they say, why? And then you say, well, and about three, three layers down into why, you start struggling. 
And ultimately, if they go about five layers deep, you're dealing with cosmological arguments. You're dealing with because God did it that way. I don't know. Why? Have you ever, have you ever had kids just exasperate you because they ask, they're, they're curious and they want to know why? Well, you know what? I believe God puts that curiosity in our minds as humans to ask why. Why am I made this way? Why do I have blue eyes? Why do I have this particular gift? Why does that thing delight me? Why does this thing exasperate me? Why are my skills or my abilities in this area and the rest of my family all have very unique giftings? My sister is an artist. My brother is a journalist. My younger brother is, is in marketing, and I'm a pastor and a musician. And so every one of us have very unique giftings. Why? That's just the way God did it. And so you want to ask these reporter questions, who, what, when, where, and then why. And then when you do that, then we have to go a, 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 a step deeper, another layer. We want to deal with, this is the method or the hermeneutic that I lean to, my Theology is conservative. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. This is the position that victory takes. We believe that it is inspired. It is God-breathed. We believe that it is the, uh, the authorized. God's authority is on it. I believe that it is in its original is, is inerrant. I believe in the original Word of God spoken, that there is no error in it. Now, there have been errors in translation since then. But I believe the Bible is without error. It's without mixture. It is the Word of God. And so when I approach it, I approach it with the grammatico-historical method. The grammar, the, what are the words that are being spoken? What is the context in which they were given? What did that word mean in uh, the 4th century B.C.? What did it mean in, in the 1st century A.D., in the early New Testament church? Um, what did that Greek language, how was it conveyed at that time? Uh, what is the history in terms of what was going on? How was that interpreted? So I have to understand what the word means to those people, why it was spoken to those people, and then I have to begin to apply it to my 21st century life. Are you hearing me? So there's a little bit of work. It's not just read it and then get out the whip and demand somebody, you know, jump in line, Okay. First of all, this is not that kind of church. Um, if, if you're looking for a church where you, you get a good beating every Sunday, then this I'm not a wife beater. I don't beat the bride of Christ. I believe that we're to teach, we're to correct, we're to in, encourage, we're to instruct, we're to bless, we're to invest. And I think the Holy Spirit does the work beyond that. It's not my place to control anybody. I'm sharing with you my conviction and you might not even agree with this, and that's okay. That's fine. Um, so when I do that, then I remember that any part that I examine has to be in agreement with the whole. I can't take an obscure scripture and make it say something that the rest of the whole of the Bible completely disagrees with, okay? Because I interpret scripture with scripture. I let the Word of God interpret itself, okay? And so I'm not going to take one obscure passage and create some kind of doctrine out of it and start my own church from it. It's happened in the past, okay? Folks split hairs and they split churches and go over here and start something different. And what I want you to see this morning is we always remember in the essentials we have unity, in the non-essentials we have liberty, in all things we have charity. 
And so the last thing before I get to part three and we get to the fun part this morning is the idea of literal interpretation. And that's, that's a sacred cow in the South. That's a sacred cow in, in churchianity. Uh, I believe in literal interpretation, but I have to define the term, okay? When I say literal interpretation, I'm not talking about wooden literalism, where everything demanded has to be a natural fulfillment. The, the, apostle, the, the, the disciples got into trouble more often because they misinterpreted what Jesus was saying in a literal, natural kind of way. Jesus speaking one day, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples look at each other and said, he wants some bread. Has anybody got some bread around here somewhere? He's talking about bread. Jesus rebuked them, and he said, boys, you, you, you're not hearing me. I'm not even talking about wheat and oil and, and, and baking anything. I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast and bread is that active transformative agent that causes the bread to rise. And what he was talking about was their bread is their teaching. The yeast is the legalism in their teaching that will totally rob you of joy and it will kill your spiritual life, okay? Now, remember Jesus said this. He said, he said I will destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. And everybody laughed at him because they interpreted him literally, woodenly literally. And they think he's talking about the building on the mountain over there. And he was literally talking about his own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and of course, after he hung on the cross and he died and he was resurrected in three days and they're scratching their heads going oh that's what he meant okay so he wasn't talking about the the rebuilt temple of solomon over there herod's temple he was talking about the temple of his body which he destroyed or he submitted to it being taken and then he was raised from the dead and he raised it up in three days how many of you see that this morning i could multiply numerous examples of times there are folk who interpret the book of Revelation. There's a couple of different ways to interpret it, either historically fulfilled or futuristically prophetic, that it's yet for a future day. And I have brothers in both camps, brothers and sisters whom I love and respect in both camps. And all of them love Jesus. I want to tell you that. And, and, and when you see somebody saying, well, there's going to be a dragon with seven heads and ten horns come out of, up out of the sea, Folk, that doesn't mean a natural dragon with seven heads and ten horns. It's a metaphor. When we interpret literature, we interpret it as literature. We let a metaphor be a metaphor, okay? We let uh, a simile be a simile. We interpret it as such. Things that are actually natural, we interpret that as a noun, as something that's going to actually happen, okay? So it's important that when we talk about literal interpretation, it's not wooden literalism, but it's interpreting literature as literature. That means that you need to have a little bit of understanding of what's being said, okay? Um, I, I wanted to multiply examples, but I'm just holding myself back here to get through this. Is anybody getting anything out of this? Okay, so number three, let's do it. Here we go. So let's do it. And I want to give the example of water baptism. The commandment of Jesus in Matthew 28 and 19 says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I command. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Newer translations say age because that's technically the word. It's not talking about the habitable earth, but the time that we're living in. 
okay? And so he says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when you read through the rest of the histories, you read the Gospels, you move into Acts where the next generation in the early church are taking the commandments of, of Jesus and obeying them. Never one time, everybody say not once, never one time do you see anybody baptized those new believers, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They always baptize those new believers in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or once it was in the name of the Lord Jesus. So did they disobey Jesus when they did that? There are denominations that split over this. As a matter of fact, it was in 1914, after the uh, Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit in 1906 at Azusa Street in California, then we have the split between the Assemblies of God and the United Pentecostals over this whole baptismal formula. And if you've noticed me baptize, folks, I put both of them in there because Jesus said, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But nowhere after that do you see any apostles baptizing in that exact formula. They all baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. The Father revealed himself in the Old Testament as Lord. That's the Father's name. What is the name of, of, the, of the Father's Son? Say it. Jesus. Christos is the Holy Spirit. Literally, in, 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 in Matthew 28, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are, are titles. The names are Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me explain a minute. I'm not a modalist. I'm not a oneness. I am a Trinitarian. I believe that God is one God, but I believe he's in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's another whole question. And, and I honor the commandment of Jesus, but I realize that the, the, the apostles who were the disciples, these dudes were with him for three and a half years of his ministry. How many of you know if they could have misunderstood bread when he was talking about teaching of Pharisees, how many of you know I need to have a little bit of humility on how I try to interpret the word? Come on, come on. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. I need to defer to some other brothers and sisters. I need to let there be confirmation when I feel like I see something that I've never seen before. And let the moment be a teaching moment. Let the Holy Spirit teach me, correct me. But I want you to see this. The apostles did it very differently from the way Jesus told them to, but I believe they had an understanding of what he intended, what he meant. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the commandment is one thing, and then the norm becomes something different. So it's important that you realize that, okay? So let's delve in. I need about 15, 20 minutes. We're going to go a little past noon, so just go ahead and tuck in and just hang with me. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, it's going to be okay. All right, so here we go. The woman question. Here we are. Should women preach? Should women teach? Should women be in ministry? Okay? Let's look at some problem passages. Before we do, there are two camps. There are two camps. On one side, you have what are the complementarians, and then on the other side, you have the egalitarians, and there are scriptures for both sides. The egalitarians believe that, that we are equal, that there's no distinction, there's no difference, and there are scriptures. Galatians 3 says, says this, in Christ, there is neither male nor female. There's neither bond nor Jew. There's neither uh, Scythian or barbarian. Uh, I take it a step further and say there's neither black nor white, okay? So neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, that's slave or free man, that is uh, Scythian or barbarian. So God will take all kind of folks and he will take the mess of your life and he will make a message out of it 
whether you're male or female, and you can proclaim what God's done in your life. Somebody say amen. So the other group on this side are the complementarians. Now, not a compliment like, honey, that dress looks great on you, compli, C-O-M-P-L-I, compliment. But this is com compliment like complete, C-O-M-P-L-E, compliment, complementarian. That, that is that men have certain roles, women have certain roles, and we are unique, and there are functions that associate with, each, with the uniqueness on both sides. And never shall the twain mix. Men are to do one thing, women are to do another. And I just want to tell you, I'm not satisfied to dwell in either camp because I think they both have a point. We are not the same. At the same time, we are equal because there is neither male nor female in Christ. At the same time that we're equal, we are still not the same because God made men and women differently. Are you hearing me this morning? I don't try to be there, but too many times I, I stand in the middle. I, I'm conservative in my worldview. I'm conservative in my theology. I'm typically conservative in my politics. But there's some things on the Republican platform I can't agree with. There's some things that I embrace that are on the Democratic side. Oh, God, I can't believe you said that. Let me tell you, why, where did it happen? And I'm going to chase the rabbit to say this. Why does anything to do with the environment have to be, he's a liberal environmental wacko? How many of you know it's godly for us to have creation care? We're supposed to take care of the planet. I'm not going to say who I saw, but I was driving down the road, and there was a church member threw a big old Wendy's sack, and everything just went flying. I pulled over and picked it up. And I'm not going to tell you who it was, but I wanted to slap this person. I'm going to go, dude, it was the 1970s when we had the pitch-in campaign. Why are you throwing stuff out on the highway? We're going to inherit this place. Why don't you take care of it? Now, it's crazy that when we start talking about taking care of creation, that it immediately gets associated with the politics of the, of the left. I'm a conservative, but I believe it's a godly thing to have to practice creation care. Are you hearing me? And I think that there are all kinds of godly things that for some other reason get associated with one side or the other. That's the reason my worldview is bigger than my politics. Come on, somebody. Are you hearing me this morning? All right. Let's get the scriptures quickly. 1 Corinthians 14, man, this is, the, this is classical. Now, I just want to say from the outset that I believe that this passage is historically conditioned. I believe it spoke to that moment in time, and I believe that it does not, with the same degree, apply to us today. And I'll tell you why. Just stay with me before you load the gun and get ready to shoot me, okay? Hang on. Here we go. Let's read it. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. They gathered together, and men sat on one side, women sat on the other, and some very extroverted, gregarious woman is shouting questions across the church to her husband, and he's trying to bring correction and order in one of these representations of the body of Christ in Corinth, okay? But now let me just say this. Is this hard and fast set in a rule that for all time, for all churches everywhere, that women should never, ever have a chance to speak up and say anything? I don't believe that's the case. Let's look at the New Testament norm. Let's go back to the book of Acts and look with me, please, to uh, Acts, a, a, a story about Philip's daughters. Philip's daughters prophesied. Look at this with me. Paul takes the missionary journey, and it says the next stop after leaving Tyre was Ptolemaeus, 
where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed for one day. The next day, we went on to Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. That happened in Acts chapter 6. So one of the deacons, he had four unmarried daughters who had what? Say it. The gift. If they had the gift of prophecy, what, how do you think they prophesied? Prophesy means to foretell, and it also means to foretell. There is a predictive futuristic element to prophecy, but for the most part, there is a declaration of the works of God. Like right now, I'm prophesying. I'm preaching the works of the Lord. I'm in the moment of teaching you about Scripture and how to interpret it. I'm using a gift, a gift of teaching, and a prophetic element is mixed in this thing, okay? Now, I don't, I don't do it silently. I'm speaking. I don't email it into you. I don't tweet it, okay? If these women, if, if Philip's four daughters had the gift of prophecy, they had to speak. Prophecy is a vocal gift. Everybody say, open your mouth. All right, so, okay, so we've got to ask the question, and this is the same New Testament that Paul is writing. So does the Bible in a place of contradiction here? No, hang on, I don't think so. Uh, let's, let's move on to the next passage, okay? Now, this, this one is obvious. When I say historically conditioned, light bulbs are going to go off for you right here. Here we go. He says, but there is one thing that I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So we do have a hierarchy of authority. We believe that. God, Christ, male, female, in the house, in marriage. Okay, every man's not over every woman because you're not assigned to me. I was over my wife, but I walked beside my wife, Dawn. Okay, we were mutually submitted one to another in the fear of the Lord. Let's go on, verse 4. It says, a man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. Everybody say, speaking. If you're praying or prophesying, you're not being silent. Okay. This is three chapters before Paul said women are not permitted to speak. Look here. Here we go. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this, back up a little fast. For this is the same as shaving her head. Stop right there. Now, if a woman, he basically says, is going to pray and prophesy, she needs to have her head covered. How many of you know you can't do that and be silent? I'm waiting. How many of you know the same dude who wrote and said they're not permitted to speak just gave permission, if you have your head covered, you can prophesy or you can pray in public. So it's not a commandment that has a norm that basically is absolute. He's, ne he's not saying that women never, ever have a chance to speak in church, but yet that's how some churches interpret that. And it gets to be ridiculous. They recognize these days that there are women who have gifts of teaching, and so they let them do it in the fellowship hall, and the men can even be present. But whatever you do, don't let her be on the platform and stand behind that holy pulpit, that holy piece of wood. Now we start swallowing gnats, straining gnats, swallowing camels. Okay? And so what I want you to see this morning is he basically says, yes, you can speak, you can prophesy. If you're going to pray or prophesy in public, you have to do it out loud. You can't do it silently. You know, what are you going to do, email it in? Are you kidding me? Okay, so he says, a woman who prophesies without a covering on her head, for this is the same as shaving her head. Come on, let's go here with verse 6. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. Now, you know what? I've watched two services of lovely ladies walk in this morning, and there's not a head covering on any one of you women. Why not? 
because it's historically conditioned. Let's just pause our service here and get on a great big bus together and let's go visit every church in Marion West Memphis. I guarantee you there won't be, there'll be less than 1% of the women in all of those churches that went to church this morning that had a covering on their head. So I guess pretty much folk realize that it's historically conditioned. You don't have to have your head covered. Are you, are you okay with me this morning? Are you all right? Okay, so not being able to speak is not absolute because if you have your head covered, then, then you can speak. Well, I tell you what, let me get the rest of this. He says, but since it's shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. You know what? Nobody in the room, none of you women shaved your heads before church today. And since it's a shame to cut your hair, I see that a bunch of you cut your hair. There's a lot of shame in this room. Do y'all want that kind of legalism? I, I got delivered from that as a kid. Women couldn't wear pants because they said it was men's clothing. And I tell you, they were, they were pantsuits that I don't know a man that would put it. If a man had put that on, shame on him. It's just made for the cut of a woman's body. And I better not go any further than that. I just better leave it alone. Because we're not the same. We're shaped differently, okay? And the brother said, thank you, Jesus. All right, I need to leave that alone. Here we go. All right, if you want to get legalistic, come on. Do you know what all these verses say? Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Guess what all those scriptures say? Brothers, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the brothers, come on, all you rednecks, line up, pucker up right up here. <laughs> Y'all want to come up? Let, let's, let's do some New Testament fellowship. First of all, you talk about losing membership in this church. If we got legalistic and I demanded that you all greet each other that way, and I'd probably end up with another kind of crap. Anyway, I better leave that alone. Uh, y'all hearing what I'm saying this morning? There are things in there that are historically conditioned. There are a couple of you, I about can't even get you to shake my hand, much less kiss me. First of all, I don't want your lips on my cheek. I don't think some of you are that clean. Anyway, I'll leave that alone. And I know you don't want to be on my cheek. I've been to cultures, I've done missionary work where it's kind of the, you know, this is the person's face and you kind of, the Hollywood kiss, my, my, you don't even touch skin. And, and, and that's just the way the culture does it. That's praise God. I go to that missionary country, I'll do that. I remember as a young, young, young minister of the gospel, in those years, I was a complete teetotaler, no alcohol whatsoever, and I went into a home where they didn't have decent water to drink and there was wine at the table. And I, was, I really wrestled for a few moments whether I was going to insult that family and eat the meal with them they prepared and drink the wine. And I, at that moment, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to lose my salvation, but I sure could lose a family that I'm trying to affect for the kingdom of God. So alcohol crossed my lips on that missionary trip. Y'all hear me this morning? So these are controversial things that are non-essential. Help me this morning in the essentials. What? Come on, everybody say unity. Thank you for the amen in the back. In the essentials, say what? Unity. In the non-essentials, in all things. All right. Are you with me? Are you getting anything out of this? How many brothers are glad we don't greet each other with a kiss? <laughs> Handshake is just fine, one said. All right, let's get one more trouble passage here. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Okay, great. Let's just look back to a passage where Paul is directly involved himself. 
Let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, next verse. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos. Everybody say Apollos. Apollos was an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. And it says, he had been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. Okay, look at this. When, say, say the names. Now, which one of those is obvious who the female is? Priscilla. Priscilla is a woman. Notice the order in which they're named. Because in the Bible, the, the leader, the, the superior over the inferior is always listed first. Okay? If you'll remember when Saul of Tarsus got saved, he was listed as Barnabas and Saul. Within a few years, his ministry had developed, his gift had come forward, and it became Paul and Barnabas. You'll read, you read the book of Acts, you'll see it happen. And then when you, when you see a list of people, it will always be the prominent leadership listed first before those that are as servants or, or helpers, okay? So he says, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, Aquila took him aside and Priscilla cooked in the kitchen. Is that what it says? They, everybody say they. They took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila are teaching a young preacher, teaching a man, explaining the word of God to a man, and a woman's involved. It's in their house. Paul knows all about it, and they're discipling this guy, okay? It says, even more accurately, this is Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Somebody say amen. Now, let me just say this. You really want to press this and you don't feel like as a male you should let any woman ever usurp your authority? Are you going to play that card when a female police officer pulls you over? I bet you won't get very far with that. Or when you stand before a female judge, are you really going to tell a female doctor that she can't operate on you because she's a woman? Yeah, let me tell you a story. This is true. You can't make this up. Years and years ago, I, I, I sat out in the office with a couple in the church. They've since moved a long, long time ago. And um, their finances are a mess, and they're arguing, they're bickering. They love each other. They love the Lord, and they're frustrated because their, their finances are a mess. And he, the man, has the checkbook. And he feels like because he's the man, he, he's the breadwinner, he ought to be paying the bills. And he's sitting right there, and his wife is an accountant. He's pressing the point, saying, I am the man. I am under Christ. Christ is under God. I will do this. And he had everything so jacked up and so messed up. And I just looked at him. I said, brother, I tell you what, I love you. But you need to lay your ego down and submit to the functional authority that your wife has because she has training you don't have. Give the woman the checkbook and let her write the checks and pay the bills and within six months, she had it all turned around, and they've got a surplus, and they're blessed because he had a hang-up about some male-female question. Are you guys hearing me? You can't, I can't make that up. I want you to hear this. Why do you see these two things happen only in these two cities? Paul writes to Corinth, and he writes to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. 
No other letters, no other epistles does he deal with these issues the way he does in these two passages. And it's because what was going on in Corinth and what was going on in Ephesus. Corinth had a massive temple, a sex cult, where they worshipped Aphrodite. Women were priestesses, which were just basically prostitutes. The men would come in, they would give their offerings, pick a priestess, they would go to a private, secure room, have rowdy sex, and that, that they would worship Aphrodite, and then the man would leave. Paul wrote to Timothy, said the same thing, basically, don't let women, they're going to get saved. You've got the, 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 the temple to Diana, or to the Greek word Artemis. They're worshiping, same kind of sex cult that's happening there in Ephesus. And he says, the Spirit of God is moving in this community. They're going to get saved. They're going to get born again. Don't let these women immediately come in here and be priestesses and run the men of this church. Don't put them in a position. No, I don't allow it. It's not going to happen. Those are the only two places that you find that. I believe that it's historically conditioned because of what was going on in those two cities. I love Bible teachers that love Jesus, that love the Lord. Beth Moore is a personal friend. As you know, my daughter sang with her for a couple of years. Priscilla Shirer is a friend. Abby sang with her. I think those are two of the finest Bible teachers that are alive right now. The SBC, personally, if you if you are on Twitter, there are Twitter wars happening right now. That's this shameful. And I love the SBC. I'm so grateful for what they've done for the body of Christ. This will probably split the SBC before it's over with. I hope it doesn't. They don't want her to leave because Beth literally makes millions of dollars for Lifeway. Beth is probably the best-known Bible teacher in the SBC, more bigger name than a lot of the men. And frankly, I'm going to tell you, I'd rather listen to her than some of those guys anyway. It's quiet in here this morning. But it's crazy. It's crazy the nonsense that people fight over words. Fight over words. Are you hearing me? Are you getting anything out of this this morning? Come on. Let me finish. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Three minutes and I'm done. Deborah was an Old Testament judge. Let's keep it in the whole of the Bible. Huldah was an Old Testament prophetess. A young king's on the throne. They'd come back in a revival from a period of backsliding. And somebody uncovered, unearthed the book of Deuteronomy. And they brought it to the king and he didn't understand it. And they called for Huldah, who was the prophetess of God. And she explained it. She taught not just the men... But the king himself, Hold explained, the word of God, the law of God, and the blessing of God came because they listened to the voice of a woman. It amazes me these days. I just want you to know that when Pastor Haley preaches, she doesn't have to have a covering on her head because we see this as a spiritual principle. She submitted to me and the leadership team. She submitted to our trustees, to our elders. And when she comes and brings the word, she is speaking with our authority. Uh, it won't be four or five times a year that you'll have a lady speak in this pulpit. I, I'm sorry for you if you can't hear her. It, this, this is what amazes me. I have a good friend in this community who adores Kay Arthur's Bible studies, and he will use the material to teach it, but there's no way he would ever let Kay come visit that church and stand in his pulpit because she's a woman. Y'all don't shout me down this morning. I'm talking about a Baptist preacher that's a friend of mine. Loves K. Arthur's stuff. And I'm going, dude, if you're reading it, she's still teaching you her words. I'm just practical. Last thing, Phoebe was a deaconess 
Romans 16, 1 and 2. Read it. Put it up there for me and I'm finished. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Sincrea. Welcome her in the, in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Treat her like a leader. She wasn't just over there darning socks for the main guys. She was a leader. Welcome her in the name of the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many, especially to me, the Apostle Paul says. Give my greetings to, does it say Aquila and Priscilla? No, Paul the Apostle, who is closing out his big legal treatise on justification by faith in the book of Romans, ends this in 16 where he's giving this massive list of all these people that have impacted the kingdom of God. And this time he still says, he puts her first, Priscilla and Aquila. He's recognizing her leadership. Y'all don't shout me down. Come on. And look what he goes on. He further says, my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches, and give my greeting to the church that meets in their house, Priscilla and Aquila. Y'all, she's calling this. She's preaching. Finally, and I'm finished, my last question. What was the norm in the New Testament? What was the norm in all of the Bible? Let's don't just pull one verse out and make it demand that we negate Deborah the judge and Huldah the prophetess and the four, Philip, the four daughters of Philip who prophesied and numerous women in the New Testament church that Paul recognizes. Y'all, when you look in church history, there was actually a female that was considered to be apostle. Her name was Junia. Lots of, let me just say this. If we didn't have the women... Christianity would have died years, centuries ago. You want to know why? Because when the men had gone home defeated, the women were the last at the cross. When the men were still in the bed on Resurrection Sunday, the women were up at the tomb. First ones there. First evangelist was the woman at the well. She gets delivered and she says, come see a man. Y'all, there are unique things that men do that women can't, but get over yourself, sir, if you think that you're losing your masculinity because you just simply recognize the gifts that God's put in your wife. Matter of fact, you need to learn to listen to her. I'm shocked I didn't get any response to that. Come on, ladies. We're not going to hold you back because you are biologically different. If there's a hand of God, there's a gift of God, there's a call of God on your life, I want to develop it. I want to see the body of Christ be blessed by your gifts. Come on, somebody put your hands together. I was in Beijing, China in 1996. We went for a month to China and Mongolia to minister after the USSR had collapsed. Mongolia was a part of the Soviet Union Federation and capitalism was rushing in and the sinful the sin money was going in pornography was just blowing all over the place in in Mongolia and so we rushed over there to begin to train church leaders we took a month just teaching on prayer and teaching on work of the Holy Spirit teaching on some very very basic Bible doctrine we were back in Beijing for a week and we sat in a high-rise hotel 
in Beijing, China in 1996, and a PhD economics professor from the University of Beijing had gotten saved and born again filled with the Holy Spirit in the great revival in China. And he was part of the Tiananmen Square uprising, and he was out there with a megaphone preaching the gospel. And he got put in prison, and he was there seven years, and he had just gotten out literally that day out of prison, and he granted us time as an American missionary group. We're sitting up there whispering because he says the government is listening. These rooms are wired. They're bugged. We're whispering. He's giving his testimony. Folks, in America, we have no concept of how blessed we are. I, I can stand up here and preach the word and not be afraid that some... National Guard or militarized forces are going to rush in here and take me out of here. Let me just say this to you. Since 1949 and the People's Revolution of China, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has been greater in that nation than anywhere on the planet. And the women lead all those house churches as pastors because their husbands are all in prison. They've been imprisoned by a communistic regime that is trying to squip the Word of God. Over a billion people in China and a hundred million of them know Jesus, that 10% is enough to shake a nation. See, our, 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 our secular news never reports those kinds of things, but the whole Tiananmen Square uprising was not just a student movement, it was a student movement that was motivated by the gospel because their lives had been transformed. They'd gotten saved and been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit in China. Now, is God just winking at it over there because that's all he's got? Just some little old women? Yeah, little old women are running that show. They're running that revival. This morning, right now, in China. Ladies, I just want to tell you, Jesus came and he was on your side. He lifted you up. He set you free. I can't embrace either side. I've got to stand in the middle and go, you know what? There are distinctions, but in Christ, we all bear the image of God, and there's not any difference. In some things, there's no difference. In some things, there are all kind of differences. So this morning, as I close this, I know I've been long. We don't usually go this long, but I wanted to get this out. This literally is a series. It's not just one little message. I've just scratched the surface on these issues. But I want to show you how to open the Bible and not get beat up because of something that's been inadequately interpreted. This morning, I believe that God is reaching into every one of our lives and showing you that he can take the mess that your life is in and make it a message. Neither male nor female, in Christ, there is no difference. This morning, with every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, I just believe the